of all the world religions, Christianity is the only one that is based upon the resurrection of its founder, of the raising of the dead from its founder. You can't rightly read the New Testament without concluding that a Christian is someone who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who lives in the light of that truth. Many in our day deny that humans have any existence beyond the biological, beyond the physical. Death is the end of us, so the, the belief is. We completely cease to exist. Any sense that we have a soul or consciousness is, is an illusion. We are just DNA, neurons, chemicals, and flesh and bones. All reality is purely material and naturalistic. Yesterday I, I watched a brief video about cryogenics and about freezing people. You get frozen so you can come back later. And the title, the, the title of the video was, uh, We Shall Live Again. So some people do it because they hope there's going to be a cure for the disease that they're suffering. And, and some people do it because they hope they're actually going to be able to remove the aging process and, and live uh, on and on. So that's the best hope you can come up with, with just physical things. But um, many assume that the belief in Christ's resurrection or the resurrection of anyone is due to pre-scientific, primitive, uh, ignorance of the laws of nature. People of ancient times came up with miraculous or supernatural explanations for what they didn't understand, is what the belief is. We believe we know better now than they did. But were the people in the days of the biblical New Testament writers and the apostles just that gullible, where they were just ready to believe in the resurrection of Jesus? One historian writes, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was assumed to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent. Outside, outside of Judaism, nobody believed in a resurrection, and the Jews didn't believe in a resurrection except for the very end, end of time. They didn't have any concept of an intermediate resurrection. Is hope in a bodily resurrection just wishful thinking? Does it matter whether Christ literally was raised from the dead? What if Christ was not raised from the dead? What difference does that make? As we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, there were some in the church of Corinth in Greece who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. The prevailing view in the Greek and Roman culture was not only that there was no resurrection of the body, but that there is no immortality of the soul. There was a popular tombstone saying that went like this, I was not, I was, I am not, I am free from desire. In other words, I'm, I'm just gone. In fact, it was so common that, that it appeared as an acronym on tombstones, like RIP, only it was in Latin and different letters. One ancient writer said that most believe that we're, we're, when the soul leaves the body, it no longer exists anywhere. It, on the day when the man dies, it is destroyed and perishes, and when it leaves the body and departs from it, straight away it flies away and is no longer anywhere. It's scattered like breath or smoke. So that's what many people believe then. Now some, in the times Paul was writing to the Corinthians, did believe people had souls that kept existing after death. They believed that death was a release from the, from the soul of the body. They saw the body as a prison for the soul. 
That is what some of the Corinthians believed. They believed that, that the soul was more valuable part of our existence, and at death the mortal body is shed like a, like a snake skin. Which is not to imply that any of you are snakes, but just that that's how they saw it. And the immortal soul continues in a purely spiritual existence, was the, was the belief. It may have been that some of the Corinthians thought of bodily resurrection in terms of the, res- the resuscitation of dead corpses. So that didn't sound very good to them. Hey, who wants to just be a resuscitated dead corpse? They believed that a pure spiritual existence was superior. So they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, and so to help the Corinthians see the, the consequences of their denial of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul first reminds them of the gospel he preached to them. So we'll look uh, at verse, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and we're just going to walk through very briefly this text, the first 11 verses. So what he says in verse 1 is, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul says, hey, you received this gospel, you believed it, you embraced it. Uh, You're being saved by it if you continue holding fast to it. If you don't hold fast to it, then you believed in vain. And such a belief, a temporary belief, would not save them. Then in verses 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul had passed on to them as of first importance for saving faith. You've got to believe these things. This, this is the absolute core. The, the, the foundation of, of saving faith in Christ is based upon believing these things that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins to atone for our sin, to take God's just punishment for our sins. And this he did according to the Scriptures, just as God had planned. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't like a last-minute plan that he he acted. He, He had said in history of the Scriptures that he was going to do this. And, and he was buried. And that's emphasized because it proves he was truly dead. He definitely did die. The death professionals, in other words, the soldiers, uh, who were knew when somebody was dead, knew he was dead. And he was raised on the third day. The scriptures foretold the Messiah would be raised from the dead. He would not remain in the grave. On several occasions, Jesus told his disciples he would be killed and then be raised. But they didn't get what he was talking about. They either got depressed or they got into arguments whenever he talked about his death. So he would say, I'm, I'm going to be killed by, by the, the, the law, and they would get in an argument over who's greatest. It's great. His words about being raised didn't register either. And after he was killed, they had no expectation whatever that he would be raised. So uh, how do we know that he was raised from the dead? Well, the Gospels tell us. It was eyewitness testimony. The Gospels are very straightforward. They're not fanciful. They're, they're not like something just invented. They're just a straightforward report of Christ having raised from the dead. And so we see this in verses 5 through 7. It says, And Jesus appeared to Cephas, that is the Aramaic name for Peter, the Apostle Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So he appears to Peter, then to the twelve. Uh, Judas had betrayed him, so and Judas killed himself, so he was out of the picture. And they recruited Matthias to replace um, Judas. And the, the qualification to, to replace an apostle of the twelve was you had to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ. So that was that was the core issue. Have you seen the risen Christ? Have you are you a witness to his resurrection? Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Some say that the disciples were hallucinating when they saw Jesus after he died. Well, for one thing, they had no uh, hope that he would be raised. So that wasn't like they they just hoped they would see Christ resurrected and and they hallucinated. That wasn't what was going on. And it's also impossible that more than 500 people all hallucinated the same thing at the same time. Paul points out that most of these witnesses were still alive. So he's saying to them, hey, you can go check this out. Go go consult these witnesses and have them uh, share what they've seen. Then Jesus appeared to his brother, James. So his brother had not been believing, hey, my brother cannot be the Messiah. He just cannot be the Messiah. And Jesus appears to him and, okay, you're the Messiah, and becomes uh, a leader in the church. And then he appeared to a, a larger group of apostles as well. And then Paul says in verses 8 and, and 9, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he appears to Paul, and Paul says, as to one untimely born, um, literally that's as to one stillborn, as to one who was like an aborted um, baby. So what does he mean by that? Well, he means he was not qualified. He was unfit to be an apostle. Far from being a top candidate for um, being Christ's apostle, he was dead to Christ. Instead, he was persecuting God's church. And he was so opposed to Christ, he was so sure that he was the enemy of of all that he stood for, that there's no way he would have uh, believed in in Christ as as a resurrected son of God apart from seeing him resurrected. Only a resurrected Christ could convince this zealous enemy to become his greatest servant. But Paul says in verses 10 and 11, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. But Paul says it was by, by grace, God's grace only, he was made alive to Christ and transformed from being his enemy into a hard worker for him. By God's grace, he preached the gospel to the Corinthians, to the Corinthian church, and, and they believed that Christ died for their sins and was raised from the dead. Jesus' disciples have been brought up Jews. And without the reality of Christ's resurrection, it is unthinkable that they would change so much of the faith they had inherited. So they started worshiping him as, as God, the Son of God, and they, they were taught to have no other gods before God, so they, they wouldn't worship somebody unless they knew he was God. They, they ate foods that they had been forbidden to eat their entire history, and they even changed their main day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. So it's just no way that you can explain the transformation of the apostles and their willingness to live and die for him, apart from really believing he was raised from the dead. In the book of Acts, which is the history of the first few decades of the church, Christ's resurrection was constantly the main subject of preaching. 
So it was all they talked about. So how does Paul answer those who doubt the resurrection? Well, let's read verses 12 through 20 in 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So in verses 12 and 13, Paul, uh, having reminded them that, they, that the proclamation of Christ was raised from the dead is essential to the gospel and that they had believed it, he asked them, if you believe this, if you believe the gospel about Christ having been raised from the dead, how can you say there's no resurrection? And then he says, well, the reason that you're thinking makes no sense is because if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then as Paul's going to show, the whole Christian faith collapses. It just falls to a useless heap of dust. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, which has been centered on and dependent on the resurrection of Christ, is in vain. The gospel we preach doesn't save you. It's worthless. And likewise, your faith is in vain. Your faith is useless. Since the gospel that was preached to you was worthless. The gospel is not good news, but false news. It can't do anything for you except deceive you if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. In the book, The Da Vinci Code, Sophie exclaims to the hero, Langdon, but you told me that the New Testament is based on fabrication. Langdon replies, Sophie, every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That is the definition of faith. Acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. That is not what the Bible says faith is. Paul says if our faith in the resurrection of Christ is based on fiction, if it's not true, then our faith is in vain. Don't believe it if it's not true, if it didn't really happen. He says then in verses 15 and 16, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, then the apostles have been misrepresenting God. They have been false witnesses about God. Breaking the, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. So they're breaking the commandments in order to uphold a, a falsehood. Since they claim that God raised Christ, which he did not do, if in fact the dead are not raised. Because if the dead are not raised, if God does not ever raise the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And Paul keeps making that point. So if, if, 
in verse uh, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless because you are still in your sins. Because that would mean Christ's death was not accepted as atonement for your sins. What Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, would not be true, that Christ was delivered up to save us from our sins and raised to make us right with God. It is only because of Christ's resurrection that I have, I have assurance that my sins are forgiven. It is only because of Christ's resurrection that I ultimately know that I stand in the presence of God, absolved of guilt and accepted by him. Delivered from shame and, and every condemnation. If it is not a fact that Christ literally rose from the dead, then you are still guilty before God. Your punishment has not been borne. Your sins have not been dealt with. You are under the power and penalty of your sins still. That's really sad news if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ got the victory over sin and death for us, and that would be false if he did not rise from the dead. We would not be able to live a new kind of life, no longer as slaves to sin, as Paul writes in in Romans chapter 6, if Christ was not raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And then he says in verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep, which is a, a, a euphemism for dead, meaning your temporary body, you're dead. Um, those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have perished. When, when he says those who have died have perished, he's not being redundant. He's not just saying those who have died have, di- have died. He means that believers in Christ who have died physically, instead of going to live with Christ, will be separated from God for eternal judgment, for eternal suffering. That's what perishing is if Christ is not raised. And then he says in verse 19, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are the most pitiable people on the planet. Why? Because we put our hope in the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life if we trusted in Christ. We have hope that all of our suffering in this life won't compare to the glory in the next life. That's what he says. That's what our hope has been. That all that we go through suffering in this life in Christ is redeemed. Jesus said that if we deny ourselves, sacrifice for his sake, and live for him above all other priorities, it will prove to have been worth it in the resurrection. If there's no, no, no resurrection, you've done all that for nothing. We are promised no more sorrow or sickness or sin or suffering or death. We are promised new resurrection bodies like Christ in a new heaven and new earth. Not with chemicals, not with plastic surgery, but with genuine, immortal, new bodies, great bodies, awesome bodies. We are promised new resurrection bodies in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, where we live in joy with Christ and his people forever. No more evil, no more crime, no more war, no more disasters. And all this comes to us through Christ who has been raised from the dead. But if Christ has not been raised, all we hope for is, is for nothing. Because our hope in Christ is so great, for the next life, the loss is great if our hope proves false. 
like if you were if you owed uh if you were in debt ten million dollars and you knew you're going to inherit a hundred million dollars from a relative, and then you learned that your dead relative was broke, that would be a major loss, a major smashing of your hope. Some have said that if Jesus' tomb were found with the body still in it and there was no doubt that the body was the body of Christ, that that wouldn't ruin their Christian faith at all. Why, why not, did they say? They say things like, well, because all that matters is Jesus has risen in my heart. Wrong. Paul says, no. You're, if you've hoped in Christ in this life only, regardless of what you, else you think, you're to be pitied more than all people. I saw yesterday that a 62-year-old Cuban woman who got to see the Rolling Stones in Cuba said that, I've seen the Rolling Stones, now I can die. So her her hope was um, based upon seeing the Stones. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's what he says in verse 20. So we, we get a little bit of good news from this sermon full of bad news. The good news is, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. Jonathan Edwards said, it is the most joyful event that ever came to pass that Christ was raised from the dead. Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What, what, what's first fruits? It, first fruits is not just the, the first crops, but the guarantee that the rest of the crops are coming. So what, what Paul's saying is, the first fruits are the precursor, God's pledge, his guarantee of the full harvest to come preview of coming resurrection of Christ's people and promise of renewal of all creation. We won't just be ghostly beings floating on clouds with harps. After a few thousand years, it might get a little bit boring. Hey, what are you doing today? Um, playing my harp? <laughs> floating on my cloud? Why don't you come over to my place? What are you going to be doing there? Well, I'm thinking of um, floating on my cloud and playing my harp. And, what about tomorrow? What's on what's on your to-do list? Um, harp? Cloud? Instead of that, it will be the best food, the greatest beauty, the best of earth magnified beyond what you can imagine. No corruption, no evil, no death, no disease, no political ads. And if you're missing that, you can't take it with you. Not only does Christ's resurrection guarantee that those who believe in him will be raised into glorious immortal bodies like his when he returns, but in this life, because of Christ's resurrection, he dwells in us with, through, the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's with us and in us. You've got the king of the universe inside of you if you're in Christ the savior of, of people, the defeater of the devil, the deliverer from sin is in you. 
The resurrection changes people from being spiritually dead to being alive to God. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection overcomes fear of death. I mean, do you think about death? Do you realize you're going to die? Do you realize that in Christ you have the absolute certain hope that you don't need to fear death? I recognize for most of us, we may not fear death, we just feel fear the process. True. But Christ delivers us from the enslaving and snaring fear of death. What Paul says later in, in this chapter is, death, where is your victory? You lost. It changes guilty condemnation into joy and forgiveness and freedom. It changes our hearts so they want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Like with Matt Dennis, God saved him, made him want to follow him. And the power of the resurrection is relentlessly killing sin in every true Christian. It gives you a purpose to live for, participating in his mission to spread the gospel among the nations, to increase resurrection-empowered worshipers of Christ and lovers of people. So how do you get in on this? Well, I've got a verse. It's Romans 10.9. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What does that mean? If you confess that Jesus is worthy of all your hope, of all your trust, of all your obedience and your devotion, and this is because you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll have eternal life. You'll have forgiveness of sins. One of the ways we display that is through baptism. It's one of the last commands that the resurrected Christ gave, gave us was to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I, that I taught you. Baptism symbolizes being immersed into Christ, receiving the cleansing from sin accomplished by his death and new life accomplished by his resurrection. Do you not know, says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, so the symbol is equated with reality, so when you're immersed in Christ, when you come to faith in him, you are just united to him, you're immersed into him. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you come to faith in Christ, you're, you're united with him in his death and resurrection, and you have all the payment for, for your sins are put to your account, and all of his power of new life is, is yours. So that's a great thing. That's what baptism is about. We're going to do that now. I'm going to pray Get ready for it. Father, we thank you for these young people that you have called yourself, who believe in the resurrected, risen Christ. You have given them grace 
And every person here, Father, who has trusted in you, who has confessed with their mouths Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that you raised him from the dead, has the power of a new kind of life. So, Father, we, we're grateful to be able to encourage these young people in their walk with you and their coming out, saying that they belong to you, saying they're ready to follow you with their whole lives. We ask, Father, that you would grant us a great and deep conviction of the, of the beauty and glory of, of the, what the baptism is all about, the salvation of, of a person, to belong to Christ, to reflect his glory and his goodness. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.